Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Most people these days don't like to be told what to do, regardless of who it is that is doing the telling. If it is a parental command, we can't wait for the day when we are no longer under our parents' authority and we can do what we want when we want to. Our graduates today might feel that that day has finally arrived, that they no longer have to listen to mom and dad. But some are already discovering that it's not all it's cracked up to be. Adulting is now a term. In fact, my son got a book for his graduation that was entitled, Welcome to Adulting. I did not give it to him, someone else did, but I look forward to hearing what he has to think about it. When we go to work tomorrow, nearly all of us have bosses that we have to answer to. And when they tell us what to do, we sometimes balk. After all, we want to have input. Our voices need to be heard. Our ideas need to be considered before any decisions are made. And if not, well, then they they just won't listen to me. Nobody cares. And of course, management doesn't know what they're doing. Most of us believe we have the solutions, even if we don't know all of the facts. And this mentality is behind the mistrust that we now have for all kinds of institutions. We don't trust the government nor our local school board. We don't trust large corporations or local churches. And so boycotts of companies are now prominent, especially when they don't act like we want them to act, and then we simply abandon churches altogether when they don't do what we want them to do. And yes, I hear all of that noise. I know you hear it too. We tried to get them out yesterday. Herman was up in the ceiling yesterday trying to fix this, but it didn't work. So that's not Gary messing up on the sound system. (laughs) This mentality does not change when we apply it to God. God's commands really aren't commands. They're just suggestions, ideas, or guidelines for our life for us to pick and choose as we see fit. After all, if we focus too much on commands, then we're charged with being legalistic. And so even if we do acknowledge that God does have the right to command, we often decide that for whatever reason, we are the exception to the rule. The command does not apply to me. But doesn't God have a right to tell us what to do in our lives? Or to use a biblical analogy, doesn't the potter have a right to make of the pot whatever he deems he wants to make? Theologically, we would acknowledge that, but practically speaking, we struggle to apply it to our daily lives because we love choices. We want options. The more, the merrier. And when we even say that we want God to tell us what he wants us to do, deep down what we really mean is we want God to do what we want him to do. And if it somehow doesn't match up with what what we had already predisposed to do, then we are not happy about it. We have long since been removed from the system of life whereby a son naturally became what his father was. 
And now we can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. And so because of all of that mentality, the ancient encounter we look at this morning might be difficult to swallow. I will acknowledge at the outset that not every single point that we're going to talk about today is necessarily going to apply to every single person. There are going to be some distinctions, but I think there's clearly enough here that's going to apply to all of us that there is much we can learn about God, and that's been the purpose of this series to begin with. Not necessarily to identify with the individual involved in the encounter, but to know more about the God who initiated that encounter. And so our text this morning is Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and our title today is God's Command. Verse 4, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. For I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This ancient encounter is different than most of the others that we have looked at because it is entirely a dialogue. There are no manifestations of God here. There's no visible appearance. There is no theophany like we saw last week with Sarah. But God is still present and God is still speaking. Verse 4 begins by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to me. And if you glance down through the rest of the chapter, you'll see that same phrase in verse 11 and again in verse 13. The first thing we notice this morning is the extent of God's knowledge. This is obviously another call or commissioning. God is calling out and then commissioning his prophet, and we've seen this before. But again, there is enough distinction here that we're dealing with it separately. Jeremiah is the most autobiographical of any of the Old Testament prophets, which means that we know more about him than all of the others. Verse 1 tells us that he was from a place called Anathoth which was a village of Benjamin just three miles outside of Jerusalem. He was the son of a priest, which means like many of you, he was raised in church, to use our terminology. His ministry was in Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the divided kingdom, and it took place during the reign of five different kings. He began his ministry in the 13th year of good King Josiah, which means he began in 627 B.C. This call or commissioning took place in 627 B.C. We do not know the exact age that Jeremiah is during this time, but most presume he is in his late teens or perhaps 20. In other words, about the age of most of our college graduates or high school graduates, sort of in between all of our graduates. His ministry will continue through the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. when he will then be exiled to Egypt. 
So for over five decades, he will be the leading voice for God in Judah. This book ends with King Jehoiakim being released in the year 561 BC, but we do not know for sure whether Jeremiah is still alive at this point or not. I remind you that this time period is after the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians, which means much of what Jeremiah has to say in this book is a prophecy to the southern kingdom of Judah that if they do not repent, the same thing is going to happen to them. So you can imagine that he was not a very popular man in Judah because he actually urged the surrender of the people to Babylon. He was deemed to be an, a traitor and imprisoned on multiple occasions. It is common for us to refer to him as the weeping prophet because of the passion and the tears with which he proclaimed his message along with the, the weeping that he endured because he knew the people were not going to repent and turn to God. And so in this commissioning, there is a command by God for what Jeremiah is going to do, and this is going to be pivotal for his ministry going forward. Because there are going to be dark days ahead for him. Days when he will need to look back and confirm that God had indeed called him and commissioned him to do what it is he is doing. Times when he needed to be refreshed by the reassurance of that calling. Times when he needed to know of God's love and working in his life. Likewise, his listeners needed to know that this was a direct call and commissioning from God, direct command from God. Because there were going to be other prophets during the time of Jeremiah who were going to be saying diametrically opposed things than what Jeremiah had to say. And he's going to need to know that God's commands are often costly to obey. But obedience is always the best option. So with that background, we return back to our first point, and that is the extent of God's knowledge. Many of you are familiar with verse 4 because it is one of the verses we use to defend our belief that life begins at conception. And as you well know, the abortion debate is raging once again in our nation because of the leaked brief from the Supreme Court with the possibility of Roe versus Wade finally being overturned. If it is overturned, and we certainly pray that it will be, that will not end abortion in our nation. That will simply return the jurisdiction back to the states where individual states will then have to make laws and have debates about what they intend to do. And so this promises to be an ongoing debate for many years to come, even as it has been for many years in the past. And so this verse is used, and it is a pivotal verse for our belief that indeed life does begin at conception. But having said that, you do understand that this is not written pertaining to the abortion debate, though again, it certainly does apply, and it is certainly not talking about reincarnation. When God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, he is making a tremendous statement about the extent of his knowledge. That his knowledge of us does not begin at our birth, nor does it begin at our conception. But the knowledge of God of us goes well further back than that. We talked last week about the all-knowing God, the theological term for that being omniscience. And here we see that again. Paul says much the same thing in the book of Galatians where he says that God knew him before I was born or that God set him apart before I was born. 
We certainly hear of the extent of God's knowledge with Jesus, particularly in John's gospel in that section on the good shepherd where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and therefore my sheep know me. They hear my voice and they obey. It is comforting and encouraging to know that we are known intimately by God, that we are not accidents or the result of a random series of events, but we have been created and then redeemed or consecrated by God. The word consecrated here in verse 4 means to be set apart or declared sacred. And again, while I acknowledge that not everybody is consecrated in the same way as Jeremiah, meaning that none of us are prophets, all believers are set apart by God to live lives of holiness to his glory. So yes, we do use this verse to defend our belief that life begins at conception, but this verse goes well beyond that and reminds us of the broader knowledge of God, that he knows us before we were conceived, and because he knows us, he has a plan for our lives, which is my next point. Not only do we see the extent of God's knowledge, but secondly, we notice in verse 5 the scope of God's plan. I kept saying verse 4, but you knew it was verse 5 that I meant. Now we're in the second half of verse 5. I mentioned to you earlier that Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of, Egypt, of Judah. But notice at the end of verse 5, the scope of his ministry. It says nations, plural. Toward the end of this book, he is going to pronounce judgment on at least nine other nations. Now that does not mean that they are going to listen to what he has to say. Judah didn't listen to what he had to say either. But what it does mean is his ministry is broad in scope well beyond just Judah. Since God is sovereign, something we've talked about repeatedly in this series, he is sovereign over all. God is not just sovereign over the chosen people of Israel. God is not just sovereign over his church. God is sovereign over all of creation, which means everyone and everything. Certainly we acknowledge that that does not mean that they understand that. It doesn't mean that everybody knows the plan of God and is humbly accepting of it. Many, of course, rebel against God and want nothing to do with him, but that does not negate the fact that God is still in control of their lives, whether they know it or not. Now, I'm not trying to say that God's plan for you involves all the nations, though it might. We do need to understand that prophets like Jeremiah do not exist in our day. I am not a prophet and no one else is. God's use of prophets in the Old Testament sense has ceased because we now have the full revelation of his word. Preachers are not prophets. I do not wait for direct revelation from God so that I can deliver that revelation to you. We are messengers who are simply recounting or retelling to you what God has already given to all of us in his word. Which is why we as a church strive to stick to preaching and teaching the Bible in all of the various facets of our ministry, whether it is from the pulpit or in the Sunday school classroom or other ministries. We stick to the word of God because that is the message we've been called and given to proclaim. But God still does use people in his kingdom in a variety of ways. Meaning he does, has a, he does have a plan for your life and mine. And our task then 
is to be obedient to that plan that he has called and equipped us to do. Of course, that means that we must discover what that plan is. We must know what our strengths are. We must know what our passions are. We must have confirmation from other people within the church that these indeed are our gifts and our gifting. And therefore, we then be obedient to them and live them out. This series is entitled God's Command because God has a right to tell us what our lives are going to be. Of course, Jeremiah is not initially convinced. And so thirdly, we have to talk about the denial of Jeremiah's ability. Much like Moses before him, Jeremiah decides to tell God that he is not capable of doing what God has called him to do. So he gives him several objections. Objections that in Jeremiah's mind rule him out from doing the very things that God is commanding him to do. I'm sure you've made excuses before. Excuses to God. Giving him reasons why you can't possibly do what he's asking you to do. Frankly, I did the same thing when I first thought that God was calling me to preach. I did not like to speak in front of people. In fact, I did not speak in front of people. Actually, on several occasions, willingly took zeros in classroom assignments rather than stand up before the classroom and say anything. I didn't know about Jeremiah at the time, but I did know about Moses. And God used a sermon on the excuses of Moses to convict me that I was doing much the same thing. We make excuses all of the time to get out of things we don't want to do. I'm too busy. I don't have the time. I have something else to do that day. And sometimes those excuses are valid. We are not called to do everything. But at other times, we are very much like Jeremiah, lacking confidence in our own ability. And that's just it. Jeremiah was not called and commanded by God based on his own ability. God is not commanding Jeremiah to do anything that he is going to do based on his own capabilities. Nowhere is that mentioned in here. First, Jeremiah says he has an inability to speak, meaning that he is not trained to speak to a large group of people. When Moses made that same excuse, as I mentioned a moment ago, God reminded him. He said to Moses, Moses, who made your mouth? The idea was that God was the one who created him, and if Moses had an inability to speak, then God had the power to overcome that. A prophet certainly had to speak in front of people. That's what he did for a living. And he needed to be confident in doing that. After all, much of what specifically Jeremiah was going to say was not going to be well received. So this is not about Jeremiah lacking the charismatic personality or the winsome personality that he's going to need in order to draw people to himself. This is about confidence in God's command in the face of opposition which then leads to his second excuse. He says, I not only have an inability to do what you're calling and commanding me to do, but I am immature. I'm not old enough to do this. And if we are to merely look at his qualifications, Jeremiah is right. He is young. Again, I said he's uh, probably maximum of 20 years of age at this time. You know, I think sometimes we have the opposite problem nowadays. We raise young people that have the full confidence to do whatever they want to do. Oftentimes before, they're really ready to do it. 
So I am not saying to our graduates this morning or to you that you ought to have the confidence to do everything you want to do this next year. Frankly, there are times when we need experience. There are times when we need to learn wisdom that only comes through time. You don't graduate from high school nor college and then start at the top of the ladder. You've got to work your way up from the bottom of the ladder. You've got, your good, you've got to get your foot in the door, as we often say, and then demonstrate that you are able to do what they're asking you to do so that you can rise to that level. People don't graduate and then start at the top. You have to work your way up. That's why there's actually a minimum age to be president. You have to be 35 years of age to be president so that we can weed out those that are not ready. Though that doesn't seem to be working, does it? And that's not a partisan comment. Solomon made a similar confession when God had called him to be king. And that is why he asked for wisdom when God said, you can ask for whatever you want. Because Solomon knew he lacked that, and so he asked God for it. But Solomon wasn't trying to avoid the task. Jeremiah is. And what I'm trying to say to you at this point is that when God commands us to do something, no excuse is good enough. It's not like God has forgotten about some deficiency in your abilities. It's not as if God has commanded you and then something comes to light that he did not know of and had he known that, he would have never commanded you to do that. Again, we've talked about God's knowledge, and we've seen it again this morning, that the extent of God's knowledge goes far beyond what any of us could think. So when he commands us to do something, he knows we can do it. Not because of our own confidence and not because of our own ability, but because he intends to give us the strength to do that very thing. Which leads to our next point, the equipping of God's servant. Where God commands us to go, what God commands us to do, God equips us with whatever we need for success. Now, by success, I do not mean that we will bear more fruit than anybody else. I do not mean that everything will be easy and we will accomplish whatever it is we've set out to accomplish. I'm not talking about success in a worldly standpoint. I simply mean obedience. God equips his children with all we need to be obedient to the command that he is giving us. And that is why he does not accept Jeremiah's excuses. And instead, he, he declares to Jeremiah, you're going to go where I tell you to go, and you're going to say what I tell you to say. And remember, this is all part of the same encounter. The God who said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you is now the God who is saying to Jeremiah, I'll equip you to do whatever it is I'm commanding you to do. Now, I mentioned at the outset that not everything in this encounter will directly apply to us, but this does. God equips his servants. And that applies to all of us because all of us are commanded to speak. There is no doubt about that. That doesn't mean you're gonna speak to nations. You may not speak to large groups of people, but all of us, we are well aware as believers are called upon to share the good news of the gospel with others. And yet, isn't, in, isn't it in this very thing where we often make the most excuses? I don't know what to say. What if they won't listen to me? What if I say the wrong thing? 
Hopefully we see in Jeremiah's encounter that these are not valid excuses. And these are just a sample of many more excuses we make. But the point being that no excuse is valid before God because God has issued the command and God has promised to equip us to fulfill the task he's given us. And so the question for both Jeremiah and us is a matter of simple obedience. Are we going to do what God commands us to do or are we not? We also have been saved. We too have been called to holiness and we too have been called to speak on behalf of God. And so the real question is not how or where. The real question is a simple question of obedience. Will we put our faith into practice, believing that the God who has called us is faithful to equip us, and thus we can do what he's commanded us to do? Again, I know we don't like to be told what to do. We want to make up our own minds. But we're not talking about a relationship with parents here. We're not talking about a relationship with peers. We are talking about the God who created us and redeemed us and therefore has every right to tell us what to do. And our only appropriate response is faithful and humble obedience. We do know that this is the response of Jeremiah as the rest of the book bears out. But my concern at this point is can it also be said of us? Is it possible that it's time for us to stop making excuses because there's a certain aspect of our lives where we know what God is commanding us to do, but we've made excuse after excuse, and we can see in Jeremiah now that none of those excuses are valid, and God has promised to equip his servants so that we can and should obey. I remind you of the power that we saw last week where God says to Sarah, is anything impossible or too hard for God? And the answer, of course, was no. But I'm afraid of what that might mean for my life. Well, join the club. We all have those fears. When I was in seminary in Memphis, one of my greatest fears was that God would call me to missions or Mississippi. <laughs> and I'm still afraid of the latter. We had special missions day every semester in school. We had to go, so there was no skipping it. But I would go fearful, fearful that I would have to respond to a call that I really didn't want to respond to. And so the next thing we see here in this encounter is the assurance of God's deliverance. God says to Jeremiah, do not be afraid. Do you know that's the most often divine command in all of Scripture? Do not fear or do not be afraid. Every time it is commanded, it is implied that the people that God is speaking to are afraid. Humanly speaking, Jeremiah has every right to be. I told you he ministered under five different kings and he was despised by four out of those five kings. The only king that he had a good relationship with was good King Josiah. Every other king despised him. I know they're still there. Just ignore it. We all know what they are. So pay attention. Jeremiah is more important than what they're trying to say. The people hated him because he spoke the truth. Jeremiah consistently predicted judgment upon the people because they would not repent. He, in fact, encouraged them to surrender to Babylon. How popular do you think a politician would be today? 
if he or she spoke out and said, we just need to go ahead and admit it and surrender to Russia? Let them have the Ukraine and let them have whatever else they want because they're coming for us all and they're much more powerful than we are, so we might as well admit it and surrender. That politician would likely not make it to the next election alive, but he or she certainly would not win the next election. And that is exactly the situation that Jeremiah was in. He was telling the people that God was going to judge them just like he had done the northern kingdom, this time through the Babylonians. And instead of listening and repenting, they mocked and persecuted him. Kind of sounds a little bit about what happened, sounds a little bit like what happened to Jesus. I want us to understand that the calling of God and the commissioning of God and even the command of God does not equal a life of comfort. Jeremiah's life was anything but comfortable. He was in prison and thrown in pits. And yet God promised to deliver him, and God did deliver him, because Jeremiah was still alive and went into exile in Egypt, where presumably he died. Now, I do not say that to give you the confidence that you will live through everything. I can't make that promise. People have been martyred for the faith, asked the 12 or most of the 12 apostles. Missionaries have been killed for sharing the gospel, both in history and in modern times. But even here, there is ultimate deliverance, for we seek a better home and a better future. But regardless of the earthly outcome, we have no reason to fear. And why is that? Because the text says God is with us. God does not promise to remove all the obstacles from us, but he does promise to be with us as we face them. I've told you before that my basic prayer in the hospital is not for God's presence to be there. I don't have to pray that. God is already there. That's a promise. But what I do pray in a hospital is that the patient and the family will know of the presence of God. And that's a promise not only for Jeremiah, but for all believers. The last thing I want you to notice is something we've already been talking about, but it gets more specific in verses 9 and 10, and that is the challenge of God's mission Verse 9 reminds us of Isaiah, another symbolic gesture to assure the prophet that God will be doing the speaking through him, even as Isaiah had his lips cleansed. But then verse 10 is the specific mission, four negative statements and two positive statements. God is going to bring judgment, not because God is mean, but because they have failed to repent. And even here, there is the hope of the future. You'll see this recurring throughout the Old Testament prophets that as much as they talk about judgment, and there is a lot of that, but as much as they talk about judgment, they always talk about a remnant, that God is not going to forsake his people, that there will be a remnant. God will bring judgment, but he will also rebuild and replant. We, of course, want to jump to the rebuilding, the replanting. I've never had my own garden, but I know enough about gardening to know that you just can't start planting. You've got to till up the soil. You've got to break the ground. You've got to get rid of the weeds. You've got to do some work before the rebuilding and the replanting. So there's always hope, even in the midst of a challenging mission. Again, I've tried throughout this series to move forward to the New Testament and see what the Bible has to say in our New Testament about the individual which we are encountering in the Old Testament. And frankly, Jeremiah is only mentioned three times In all of the New Testament, all three of those references are in Matthew's gospel. 
which is a bit surprising given how prominent Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. The first mention of Jeremiah is in Matthew chapter 2. It's a quote from chapter 31 of Jeremiah pertaining to the killing of infants around the birth of Jesus. The second reference of Jeremiah is the same one we looked at when we were talking about Elijah. When they asked Jesus, or Jesus asked them, I should say, who are people saying that I am? Some of them said, well, you're Elijah, come back. And in that same passage, some of them said that he was Jeremiah. The final reference is actually a quote from Zechariah. It's about the 30 pieces of silver for which Jesus was betrayed and sold. And while it is actually a quote from Zechariah, it is attributed to Jeremiah in Matthew's gospel because Jeremiah was the more prominent prophet in that day, and that was a legitimate way of referencing in that day, though it may not be in our own. So instead of moving forward to the New Testament, I'm going to go back further in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and 18. Moses is speaking to the people knowing that he is not going to enter the promised land with them. And God promises that he's going to raise up another prophet after Moses is gone. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And certainly you can see the similarities between that promise and the words that we read here in Jeremiah. So it is possible that Jeremiah eventually came to the point where he believed that he was the other prophet that had been promised, one like Moses. And while that might be true, we know that ultimately that promise of another prophet like Moses was not completely fulfilled in Jeremiah, but it was fulfilled in Jesus. The greatest of all prophets, according to Hebrews, the prophet who still commands us his children, and he has every right to command us because he has created and redeemed us and therefore our only response to God's command is humble and faithful obedience. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. Yes, even for your commands. In a world in which we don't like to be told what to do, you have every right to tell us what to do. And I pray that we would humble ourselves and faithfully obey you. Knowing that what you've commanded us to do, you will also equip us to fulfill. And so I pray we would be faithful in following you and that you would receive the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.